And we're going to continue our series on uh, measuring up according to the Bible. How do I measure up according to Scripture in certain areas? And we've dealt with the issue of our faith. We've dealt uh, with the issue of our Bible reading. And uh, tonight we're going to be dealing with the subject of our prayer life. Our prayer life. Are there some things that the Bible tells us about uh, a right prayer life that ought to characterize us when our prayer life is what it should be? Uh, and, you know, how do we measure that? Do we know? Uh, are we praying correctly? Are we praying uh, with a, a mature heart? Are we praying by faith? Uh, what is it that the Bible has to say on this? So we're going to look at um, a number of scriptures this evening. I've done my best to put them in uh, order as they come through the New Testament. So hopefully you'll just have to keep turning a few more pages to the right to make it a little easier so I know sometimes when we have these lessons that have a lot of Scripture in them, uh, it's hard to go back and forth and back and forth a lot. So I've tried to put them in an order that makes, uh, it, makes it a little simpler to get, get turned in it. So we're going to start Matthew chapter 5. We're going to work our way uh, through uh, about the middle or so of the New Testament. And uh, how do I measure up when it comes to the things of my prayer life? All right, we're going to start in Matthew chapter number 5. This is uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus teaches an, uh, an awful lot of material in this message, and um, it's one of the, the longest messages that we have recorded of the Lord Jesus. And uh, in uh, chapter five, Matthew chapter 5, as we get down to verse... Um, uh, this, do I have the right... No, I don't have the right verse on that one. I'm sorry, chapter 6. I have the rather wrong chapter. I apologize. Chapter number six. <laughs> I apologize. I was looking at the number wrong, but I got it right now. Chapter number six, if you will, one page over. And verse number seven. Chapter number six and uh, verse number seven. He's uh, teaching here when they pray. Uh, in verse five, he tells them not to be hypocrites um, that love to pray standing in the synagogues in the corners of the streets, seen of men, and, and these people that are prideful of their their praying and of course uh i'm not against public praying i think the bible teaches there are times for public praying but it ought not be done with a haughty attitude and jesus is trying to set some foundations about praying verse number six he talks about entering into your closet and i've often said this that the public praying that we do will never be the right way unless our private praying is the right way and i think it starts with the humility and the time spent with the Lord uh, in secret. And verse number 7 is where we're going to pick up reading tonight. He says, but when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Now, I'm going to stop there for a minute because we're going to spend a little bit more time on this one than anything else that we're going to deal with tonight. And I'm going to hopefully just give a, I'm going to give a quick, uh, short, individual Bible study, if you will, kind of inserted here. And perhaps one of these days we'll do a, a whole message on it to help, help it uh, be very clear to us. But I want us to, and we understand that uh, there are the, the three most important rules of Scripture interpretation are context, context, and context. Uh, what is he speaking of here when he speaks of this? He says, uh, when, thou, uh, when you pray, use not vain repetitions. I've, I've often heard people, when they pray, um, they say the word Lord 
or Father, like every other word in the prayer, as if it makes it a more spiritual prayer by calling His name that way. I will say this. Prayer ought to be a natural conversation of the Christian communing with God. It's not some form of... um, you're not, you're not putting on some kind of performance with it. You're not trying to, there's not some ritualistic uh, repetition that's supposed to be done with it. You're communing with God. You're speaking with God. And you're sharing your heart to Him. Just as if uh, I were to walk up to any of you, and I did many of you tonight, and greeted you tonight. I, I shook your hand. We talked for a minute. Uh, shared a, a, a comment or two back and forth about of interest to us. And I didn't call your name every other word as I was talking to you. It's abnormal to do that. And I, I, a, lot, a lot of times we'll read this and we'll think, okay, that's what he's talking about, this vain repetition. But, but let's look at the context a little bit closer because I don't believe that's what he's speaking of here specifically, although I don't think that that's the best way to pray either. But let's look at this in its entirety, verse 7 and 8. He says, but when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do. Notice, notice the colon there, that the statement that was made is putting the emphasis on this next statement that follows the colon. It's the magnifying glass, if you will, of the next statement. So he's speaking here of, of these heathen that pray with repetition, for they think, and this is the key, for they think that they shall be what? Heard. For their much speaking. So in other words, they think that um, like talking to a little kid as a parent, sometimes you tell them no, and then you have to tell them no again, and then you have to tell them no again, and eventually you have to give them swats. As they get older, you teach them they obey the first time. As if they're not going to listen, as if the the God that they're praying to is not hearing them or is ignoring them, and that you've got to keep after him in order to get his attention. And we're going to look at another passage here in a little bit that I think is often mistaught in our churches. Because even as God's people in our churches, there are times that we make it sound like we have to continuously bombard God with prayer to get Him to pay attention to us. I tell you this, God pays attention to us every moment of every day. He is not distracted. He's not too busy. He's not off there somewhere doing something for somebody else, and you've got to try to grab his attention by much praying. Now, there's no doubt the Bible says we're to pray without ceasing, but I don't think that's what it's speaking of here because we see in verse number 8 that it's something very, very specific that he's speaking of here. He says, Be not ye therefore like unto them, speaking of these heathen that pray repetitiously, Be not ye therefore like unto them. There's another colon, and again, this statement is... Kind of shining a light on this next statement to cut follows if the emphasis is on the second part of this. For your father, what? Your father, what? Knoweth. We don't have to try to get God's attention in prayer. We don't have to pray a thousand times for the same thing to get God to hear us. God knows what we need even before we've ever prayed the first time. At least that's what it says here in verse number 8. He says, For your Father knoweth what things ye have need of, what's the next phrase here? Before you ask Him. Why do we get this idea sometimes that we have to 
pray and pray and pray and pray and we keep praying until God answers it. There are some things that we are to pray continuously for and there are some things that we are not to pray continuously for. There are some things we're to pray for by faith and expect that God's going to answer them. We find here that the context of this is that the praying spoken of is dealing with what we have need of. What we have need of. We don't have to pray repetitiously for that. We pray by faith, believing. And what God chooses to supply, we live within those means. And we live with contentment within those means. Uh, let's look at a couple passages here. Let's look over just one chapter further to chapter 7. And, and we're going to come back here in just a minute uh, and look at that. But chapter 7 and verse number 7. Jesus, same, same sermon, he's still preaching, teaching these lessons and preaching this to the people. He says in verse 7, Ask, and if you ask enough, I'll give it to you. Is that what your Bible says? No, no. What does it say? Ask, and it what? Shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of whom his son asked bread, will he give him a stone? So notice the illustration that Jesus is using here. He's using an illustration of a father and a son. And the son has a need. The son has to go to his father and ask him for bread, just even the very food to eat. And he says this, if a son comes and asks a father, he says, what man of there is there of you whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father, which is in heaven, Give what? Good things to them that ask Him. Now, there's a parallel passage in Luke, and I want us to look at that one uh, as well. Uh, and I don't have, I didn't write the chapter down on this one. I think I can find it, though. It, yes, it is. I think that's where it is. Luke 11, and I think verse 1, if I'm right on this. Uh, yes. Okay, so Luke 11, here we find Jesus is actually teaching uh, his disciples to pray. And it says, and it came to pass, in verse number 1, that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, when you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said unto them, so, so again, he's, he's dealing here with how they're supposed to be praying. And he said unto them, which of you shall have a friend, shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight? And say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, 
For a friend of mine is, in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. So the first illustration we find here is going to a friend in need and asking that friend to help meet the need, and the friend cannot be troubled with it. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his what? His what? Importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, ask and it shall be given you, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and him that knocketh it shall be opened. And if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? We find two different relationships that are they're spoken of here. The friend who is reluctant doesn't want to be troubled. But then there's the father-son relationship. The father-son relationship, it says the father, he's, he knows how to give good gifts to his children. He said, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? So a lot of people will go to, go to this passage, uh, also in Luke, chapter number 18, and they will say, well, we're supposed to bombard the Lord Jesus with the things that we need. Let's see what it says here in Luke, chapter number uh, 18, and see what it's talking about here. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. So we're not, we're not disputing the fact that we're to always pray. But he says, saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city. And she came unto him, saying, Now I want you to notice the, the wording here. Saying what? Avenge me of mine adversary. Is she praying for her needs, the things that are needful for her? She's praying for vengeance against somebody who is persecuting her, her adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God, notice this, avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Now, you may say, well, doesn't that say that we should be praying importunately to God about everything? No. It's speaking about a very specific thing. You've got to understand that in chapter 17 of Luke, He's dealing with the end times. He talks about the fact that there's going to be two women uh, grinding together. One will be taken, the other one will be left. There's going to be two men in the field. One will be taken, the other one left. And uh, he's talking about these end time events and the judgment that was going to be coming. Uh, he says, in that day, 
uh, which shall be in verse number 31 of chapter 7. In that day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek his life shall lose it. Whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you in that night there shall be two men in one bed. One shall be taken and the other one left. And he talks about the fact that those days there's going to be some really dark times. There's going to be some persecution. There's going to be some judgment of the Lord that comes. And he wants them not to be weary and not to faint during these times. And so the praying that is done in chapter 18 here is speaking specifically of God avenging those that were oppressing his children. This would be similar to the martyrs found in Revelation that are crying out, How long, Lord? How long? So not everything are we supposed to be importunate to the Lord about. There are a few things that I think the Scripture does speak of. When it comes to our needs, the things that we need, I believe we pray by faith, we leave it in His hands. We don't sit there and beg and plead with Him as though He does not hear us or to try to get His attention. Um, But there are some places we do find. We find here in Luke 18 that there was obviously praying for God's judgment to avenge those that were oppressing them. And it talked about the fact that there was an importunate widow that was able to get the judge to move in her behalf. We also find in a lot of Paul's epistles, as he begins the epistle, he says, I pray always for you, most every time he speaks, giving thanks for you and praying that God will, and then he talks about the things that he wants God to do for them. And so when it comes to praying for others, I believe we ought to pray continuously for them. Uh, When it comes to someone needing to be saved, trusting Christ as their Savior, I think we pray for them continuously, that the Holy Spirit will continue to do His work. But it seems to me that in the times that Jesus is teaching His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, that when it comes to the things that are of our necessity, that God knows what they are, we don't have to be repetitious about it. We don't have to continuously say, uh, Lord, I need $500 to pay my light bill this week. And then an hour later say, Lord, I need $500 to pay my light bill this week. God knows that. We've prayed. We've put our faith in Him. Sit back and let Him take care of it. And, and I think that this is something that is a, is a testimony issue. Because if we look back in Matthew chapter number 7, <coughs> excuse me, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, excuse me. When you look back at Matthew chapter 5 and uh, verse number 4, uh, not five, I'm sorry, I, excuse me, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7, I did, five, did it again. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7, he says, But when you pray, use not vain repetitions, as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. For testimony's sake, if we pray and ask the Lord for our needs, that He already knows we need, even before we ask Him, and we continue to repeat that prayer, repeat that prayer, and repeat that prayer over and over and over again, that it is showing people that we don't have the faith to trust that God knows what our needs are and that He'll meet them. It's, it's causing people to think that we're having to try to get God's attention which is what the heathen were doing. And Jesus teaching these folks said, don't pray that way. 
When you pray, don't pray that way. After this manner, therefore pray ye. So if they're not supposed to pray that way, how are they to pray? Here's the, the Lord's Prayer that we often know and are more familiar with. He says, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So I think one of the great things regarding a, a mature prayer life is that we have a proper view of God. When, when our praying is what it should be, we will not have any trouble reverencing God. Prayer doesn't cause God to become more common to us. Prayer causes us to have more reverence for Him. And people that get to this mindset in the day that we live that, that God is some pal or buddy of theirs, I'm grateful that He is my friend, but He is one to be revered and reverenced. He's one to be honored and to be worshipped. And uh, he says, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so when we pray, there ought to be uh, a level of reverence to it. Then notice in verse 10, he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And I believe that when our praying is what it should be, it ought to be praying with a desire for God's will to be done in the matter. Uh, there's, there's oftentimes what we want to see as the outcome, but we got to understand this, that our desires are tainted oftentimes by our sin nature. And what God's will is in the matter is more important for us to seek for than what we want done in the issue. And so when you pray, there ought to be a desire in our hearts for God's will to be done in the matter. Then verse number 11 he says, give us this day our daily bread. We pray trusting that God will supply our needs. We don't find him repetitively going through that one statement over and over again in this prayer. It's mentioned and then he moves on. In verse number 12, it says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I believe there ought to be a spirit of humility when we pray that seeks for forgiveness for the things we've done wrong. In verse 13, he says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. There's two things I think here. First of all, when our prayer life is what it should be, there should be a desire for us to have an escape from temptation, and a deliverance from evil. Uh, do we love our sin? Do we long for that temptation to come along so we can enjoy that sin? If our prayer life is right, it will cause us to have a desire to be delivered from the very temptation of it, to be delivered from the evil that's there. And then secondly, there will be a spirit of praise and worship to God. If our praying is what it should be, as we grow in our prayer life, more and more we will become accustomed to praying with a word of praise on our lips for who He is and the things that He does for us and a spirit of worship. He says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so these are some... Uh, 
spiritual measurements, if you will, of our praying. Um, there ought to be a, a proper view of God. He is to be reverenced. There ought to be a desire for His will to be done in the matter. There ought to be a faith in trusting that God will supply the need. There ought to be a spirit of humility uh, that seeks for forgiveness. And then there ought to be a desire to escape temptation and deliverance from evil and a spirit of praise and worship toward God. Now turn over, if you will, to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And from this point forward, we'll be moving forward through the Scriptures. First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter number 4. In Philippians chapter 4, if I get to the right book, I was in Ephesians there. Philippians chapter 4, verse number 6, Paul writes this, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. I've got several things written down about these instructions given in uh, verse number 6. The first one is, if our prayer life is what it should be, we will not be overly full of care or anxious or worried. We will be praying by faith that God will take care of the matter. And this is the careful that is spoken of here. And uh, the usage of careful today has kind of been changed a little bit, although it still has some glimmers of what it meant in the time of the writing of the King James Bible. Uh, back then it meant literally to be full of care, uh, to be anxious, to be worried, to be nervous. When we tell somebody to be careful with something, what we're saying is be anxious about it, be worried about it, take very, very care, good care of it. Um, and that's, that's kind of the gist of what, what Paul is writing about here. That when we come to the Lord in prayer, we're not to come with that spirit of, of the care just burdening us down. But that we lay that burden on Him. We give it to Him. Uh, and He says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication uh, with thanksgiving. And so I think, uh, again, I think the Bible's pretty clear on this in several passages. That when our praying is what it should be, when our prayer life becomes what it should become, there will be the fruit of a thankful spirit in us. Um, which stands to reason. The more we pray within God's will, the more the prayers are answered, the more our spirit of gratitude will be there. And there will be a thankful spirit. And so we find that we're to be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And uh, I would say this, that even though we know from Matthew chapter 6, that God knows what we have need of even before we ask Him. Uh, he still asks us or t commands us in Scripture to ask Him, make our request known to Him. And again, this is not for God's sake. It's not something that benefits God. It's something that benefits you and I. It's working out our faith. It's 
allowing us to express our faith and our dependence upon Him. Uh, let's go on over to the book of Colossians, chapter number 4. Colossians chapter number 4. In Colossians chapter 4, in verse number 2, Paul writes this, Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. So again, here we see thanksgiving tied to our praying. You'll find that quite often in Paul's epistles. Uh, But I, I find two things here. First of all, that we are to continue in this prayer. We're to be consistent in our prayer life. There's, as I've said so often before, somebody said, uh, one time, I wish I could remember who it was because I, I read it, and uh, I, I made a note to try to remember who the person was that it originated with. But they said prayer ought to be the, spirit, the, the steering wheel, not the spare tire. In other words, we don't wait till it's a time of emergency to pull it out of the trunk and use it. It ought to be what directs our life each and every moment of the day. It ought to be what causes us to know God's will. And so the idea that we continue to pray, that there's a uh, uh, continuation, a steadfastness, a a, a constancy of praying. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse number 17, Paul says, pray without ceasing. And the idea that we're to be continuing in prayer is uh, prominent throughout Scripture. And then not only that, but notice in verse 2 he says something else besides this. He says, continue in prayer and what? Watch in the same. What does he mean by watch in the same? If we're to watch in prayer, what does that mean? That means once we've prayed, we're to watch for the answer. We're to to look with faith-filled eyes of expectation that God is going to answer this prayer. If we're abiding in Christ the way that we should, and our faith is what it should be, if we've read Scripture and we understand the heart and the will of God the way that we should by Scripture reading, then when we pray within God's will, He has promised that He will bring it to pass. He'll bring it to pass in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean we can consume it on our own lusts, but pray within His will that we're to be watchful in prayer. We continue in prayer, praying, and we are watchful in praying. We now look for that answer. And so we see two things that I think are characteristic of a mature and a growing and a thriving, uh, blossoming prayer life in the Christian life. And I did make one mistake. I, this last, the last passage we're going to is going to be backwards. It's going to be the book of Ephesians, which is right before Philippians. I forgot to move it up in my notes. Ephesians chapter 1. This will be our last one. Ephesians chapter number 1, and I believe this is one of the things that certainly Scripture gives us, by way of example at least, of the Apostle Paul, uh, things that we should pray for continuously, and that is to pray for others. In Ephesians chapter number 1, if we look down at verse number 16, Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 16, he charges the people there in Ephesus. He says, "Cease not to give." Uh, uh, he says, uh, "Let me back up, verse 15." He says, "Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you." Notice this, making mention of you in my prayers. Now he he ceases not to do this, so he's continuing to do this, 
Now, specifically, these are things he's praying for. That the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Now, before scriptures were finished being written, there were times where God would give new revelation and men would write them down, and that's what we call our Bible today. But from the time of John uh, and his death, we have had no further revelation from God, nor do we seek it. Uh, because John was the one that said we're not to add or take away anything. Uh, we're supposed to make sure that the revelation is done, it's complete, and there is no more. And this is all that God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. So when Paul prays for God to give a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, what's he speaking of here? The spirit of wisdom and revelation. He's talking about a desire for this. The desire of us to know the wisdom and the, the revelation of who God is in the knowledge of Him, and we find that as we read His Word. So he's praying for other people, and he's praying for other people specifically that they will have this desire to know God more, to know His wisdom, uh, to have God revealed more to them through the pages of Scripture. We know that to be through the pages of Scripture nowadays. And so he prays for others that they would have this desire. And then he says that the eyes, in verse number 18, the eyes of your understanding be enlightened. And so he prays for other people, for God to give them enlightenment in their understanding of Scripture. And to know what is the hope of his calling. Now we've spoken about hope before and the idea that it is uh, certain as if it's already done. And so let's keep that in mind as we read this, to know that, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling. We need to know for certain that we're doing what God has for us to do. And so Paul says, I'm praying for other people for this. This is one of the things I'm asking God to, to help them know. And then he says that they may know uh, the, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints is. The riches of his glory in the inheritance in the saints. And these speak of the blessings that God brings to our life by his grace. And then he says, lastly, uh, that they also would know and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of His mighty power. Now I want to stop there for a moment and say this, that in Ephesians chapter 1 we find that a sign of a mature and a growing, thriving prayer life is when we have a heart to pray for other people that we know, brothers and sisters in Christ, that they can thrive and grow in their Christian life. And we're praying for that. We're, we're burdened. Uh, to see others grow in these areas. And um, again, there, there's so much more even in Scripture, and we could, we could probably take another week yet on the subject of praying. But I want to say this about all of the things that I've given tonight with regards to what the Bible says marks a solid, uh, thriving, faith-filled prayer life. And that is this, when it comes to praying, sometimes we get 
uh, very shallow. Um, we get very uh, rushed, perhaps distracted. And we begin to pray as though we don't have time. I, I, we, we used to have a Christian school in, in Florida, in our church down there. And a number of years ago in the orientation meeting before school, I, I had been in a couple of classrooms observing the year before, and I noticed that the teachers would walk into the room, and the bell would ring, the children would sit down, and they'd say, Okay, let's pray real quick. we got a lot to cover today. And they would do that in every class. Now, without telling the children they were doing this, what message do you think they were giving to the kids? That we need to hurry up and get prayer out of the way because we've got some really important stuff to do. And, and we know this. I, I think we all sitting here tonight know this. That when it comes to people learning things from us, oftentimes they catch from the way we live and learn from that far more than they ever do from the things that we say. Our practice, the way we live, is often a stronger teacher and a a more vocal teacher than the things that come out of our mouth. We're living in a day where it seems like our prayer life even if we set time aside and, and we say, okay, this is my prayer time for the day. If we're not careful, what we'll find ourselves doing is rushing into it and rushing out of it. I told our teachers, I said, we're a Christian school. And I'd rather a young person come out of our school with great Christian character than I do about whether they can find the cosine of, a, of some math formula. I want them to be educated. There was no doubt we wanted them educated. But what good would we be to educate them and never build Christian character and things about their Christian life that they would thrive and grow in? The importance of this idea of praying. The prayer life of a Christian can oftentimes become so habitual because we do put a lot of emphasis on it that it loses its, its heart. It loses its fervency. It loses its vibrancy. And uh, it loses the idea of, of praying by faith. Uh, I've heard as men have just gotten down and repetitively just prayed and prayed and prayed for God to meet some need. And I'm not, I'm not opposed to asking other people to pray about a need with you. But when it comes to things of, of our needs, God knows what they are. And He desires to meet those needs as much as we as fathers desire to meet the needs of our children. At least that's what Jesus taught. And so often we pray really with lack of faith. And just uh, probably shallowly and not as fervently as we should not with the great expectation, watching in prayer. And uh, so I hope that these notes will help you a little bit. Um, There's a lot more in the Scriptures about prayer. We have not exhausted the subject by any means. 
volumes of books have been written on prayer. And I'll be honest with you, they haven't even scratched the surface of all that there could be said about it. And out of all the things that the disciples asked the Lord specifically to teach them how to do, it was prayer. Vitally important in a Christian's life. Vitally important. May we learn to pray fervently. May we grow in this area. Let's, let's lay our lives alongside this book and see how do I measure up when it comes to my praying. Do I have a desire for these things that it says I should have a desire for? Do I have a desire to escape temptation and evil? Do I have a desire to uh, praise and worship God? Do I have a desire to pray for the brethren that God will help them to grow? Do I have a burden for the lost? Do I have a desire to pray for those that they would be saved? And those are things when we pray for other people we ought to be praying all the time about. And I hope that will be helped to you. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, once again,